There's a very interesting scripture in the second letter of uh, John that says, anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Did you hear what I said? Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Very strong words. How do we know if we are abiding? Are we remaining in the doctrine of Christ? How does one define what the doctrine of Christ is, especially today when there are so many different interpretations of the faith? We'll talk about today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I appreciate you joining us today. And uh, as we do each week, I invite a a friend to join me on the program who comes from a background of journeying to seek to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he's here to share some scriptures that awaken him to a deeper walk with Christ and his church. And our guest today on Deep in Scripture is Drake McAllister. Drake, who has joined me with his wife, Crystal, on the Journey Home program. He and his wife were both Pentecostal pastors in the Foursquare Gospel denomination for 13 years, from 1991 to 2004. And then, as he describes it, after an unexpected encounter with the Catholic Church, he began to study the claims of the Church after five years of study, prayer, and reluctance. I don't know if he underlines reluctance, underlined reluctance, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, he resigned his pastorate and brought his wonderful wife and three daughters home to the Catholic Church on December 12, 2004. Happened to be the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. He now lives in Steubenville with his wife and five daughters, and he works for the Office of Catechetics in the Theology Department at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's also the RCI Director for the parishes in Steubenville. So Drake is very much involved with teaching the faith. And the old line, in the, at least from our Protestant background, is walking the talk. I mean, he, he, he believes very much in living out what he teaches. And I think that's one of the reasons he's chosen some of these passages that we'll look at in a moment. And that has to do is how can we know that we are indeed following the mandates of Scripture the mandates are the words of our Lord Jesus that call us to abide in him, to remain in him, and to remain faithfully in the doctrine that our Lord Jesus passed to his apostles and on to us. But there's been 2,000 or so years, so how can we be certain that we are indeed following the doctrine of Christ? Any of you listening, I don't care what city you live in, there's usually more than one Christian church. Which one? How do you know? We're going to talk a bit about that today. Let me remind you, in case well, in case you're a first-time listener, this program is connected to a website. The easiest way to find it is to go to chnetwork.org. If you do a search for Deep in Scripture Radio, you'll also find a connection to us on the website. You'll find a lot of information about the Coming Home Network International, as well as this program and all the archived programs. And you can even watch Drake and I live today as we do this. So we'd love to have you join us. Now, what I'll do is he has chosen, oh, a half dozen or so topics and verses to look at in our program. I won't read them all right now. Let me read just the first two, and then we'll take a break, and then Drake will join us. So he, he chose as the beginning of our discussion the, uh, the, the verses that I quoted from the second letter of John. So let me read verses 8, 9, and 10 from 2 John. Look to yourselves, that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting. And now second, we'll draw our attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. 
Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Do not forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Drake McAllister. Drake, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Marcus. I'm very happy to be here. And it's great to have you on, on Scripture Radio. Uh, I don't know if you had much chance to do this after you've become Catholic, have not, you? Or? Not much. Some, some radio, but uh, not specifically Scripture Radio. So yeah, this is great. Well, we'll have you back because uh, this is a lot of fun. And especially since you're just over at Steubenville, we uh-huh. can have you back whenever you want to slip away and do another mm-hmm. Scripture study. But these particular Scriptures you've chosen uh, have a, a number of layers of interest uh, from my perspective, because of where you came from. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to ask you before we jump into this, just in case the audience does not understand Foursquare Gospel, could you compare just for a, a brief second Foursquare Gospel and the Catholic Church? Compare the two? <laughs> the Foursquare Church. I mean, there's so much. I'm being facetious yes. here a little bit, but I mean, just an understanding church or, I mean. Yes. Uh, the Foursquare Gospel Church is, uh, interestingly enough, it shares some things with the Catholic Church as far as its structure. There is, in essence, a bishop. There are pastors who are appointed. They're, it's not congregational. So there's very much a strong, oh, really? yes, a very strong church role. Uh, congregations don't choose or reject their pastor. So in that sense, there is strong uh, ecclesial authority within the denomination for the most part. But beyond that, they shared what I would say a lot of modern 20th century groups shared of a very uh, individualistic view of congregations and uh, the idea of church is really centered around the people and not much of an understanding of a, a, a broad view that churches is one body represented in local congregations. But I even had one friend who said that the many denominations were uh, God's fulfillment of Paul saying one body, many uh, one body, many parts. All the denominations are the different parts, but each one contained in and of itself. Okay, I have heard others kind of taking a similar spin, but balancing on the fact that all we are we're all such different personality types. Yes, that we need these denominations to give all to bring to the great fruitfulness all the different mm-hmm. gifts and right, you know, the blessings of the personalities. From a four-square gospel perspective, and, and I'll admit, as a Presbyterian, before I became Catholic, I didn't know all that much about the four-square gospel hmm. group, its distinction even from Presbyterianism. Sure. In If we take this first verse, for example, as an, to get us the discussion, let me read it again for those that may have just tuned in. It's Second John, verses 8, 9, and 10. What I'd like, as I read this, uh, Drake, I'd love you to begin by discussing how you would have interpreted and applied this from a four-square Pentecostal sure. perspective. Let me read again. Um, we're presuming it's at least, 
the Apostle John, if not the Elder John. Yes. I know there's, uh, there's traditional issues on identifying the author of this, but I assume it's the Apostle John. Mm-hmm. Look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting. Hmm. Uh, First off, I would say for Foursquare, we were not a Reformed denomination, meaning we we shared some of the Reformation doctrinal fundamental principles, primarily faith alone and Scripture alone. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, Foursquare reformed the Reformed, as I say it. Mm-hmm. So the Pentecostals, in general, brought back the belief one could lose their salvation. They do not believe, in general, in once saved, always saved. They believed everyone can be saved, not limited atonement. They believed in gifts and miracles and the power of God to transform not just hearts, but uh, speak prophetically and that those things would take place today. So so Foursquare doesn't really see, most Pentecostals doesn't really see the, the Reformation as the glory days. It's really Acts 2, outpouring the Holy Spirit today and everything else in between is somewhat irrelevant. So this scripture in particular, uh, there seems to be a, a strong caution how we live matters, not just how we live, because its focus is what we believe. Look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for. So it already sets up attention. Faith mm-hmm. works. This would have been one of the scriptures that I would have read but not seen. Yeah. Oh, or I would have just focused on, yes, you can lose your salvation. So we, we believed in faith and works, but we stopped very short uh, of trying to quantify what does that mean. And I know as a Presbyterian, I didn't see this verse at all. I, mean, I, I may have seen it and then jumped past it real fast. Because it's just one page in your Bible. Exactly. <laughs> real quick. Right. And so then it goes on. Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Hmm. If this is inspired scripture, that is a sobering statement because what it sets up is if this is true, then, then there, there's, a, there's a corresponding truth. It must be possible to know confidently the doctrine of Christ. And what's, what's on the line? God himself. So this is significant. It's weighty. Mm-hmm. Now, for those uh, like myself that kind of discovered the church fathers and these apostolic documents, it's interesting. This word doctrine in Greek is Didache. Mm-hmm. So the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve, was an early document that purported to pass on a contextualized understanding of the doctrine of Christ. And it goes on to say, anyone who doesn't bring you this doctrine, do not receive him. So there is this strong apostolic uh, command, stick to the doctrine, follow the doctrine, your faith is on the line, and only associate with those who have that doctrine. But the doctrine is not spelled out in John. So there must be a place to find this doctrine. And, yeah. and, and then it's, it's, it's always good to remember that John is not writing Second John with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the others. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of slowly filling in the rest of the canon of the New Testament. It doesn't exist yet as we know it. The, um, I mean, it's kind of, almost ironic uh, to realize that historically at the time this was being written that document we called the Didache yes probably existed yes I mean just to put those two together I don't think he meant that particular writing sure but there's no proof that he didn't either true Yes, and I wasn't trying to... Of course uh, you weren't, but you know what I'm saying? It's interesting to say that that this early document called the Didache, which is one of the early church father, the early church writings, um, very strong in in what it's trying to express, existed about this time. I'm not trying to imply that they were equivalent, but yet that document, the Didache, is an expression 
of the doctrine of Christ yes. in the early days of the church. And what it speaks to is, is this understanding of doctrine. John here is speaking very clearly, follow the doctrine. So the Didache is the yep. doctrine of Christ, the teaching of the Twelve, the doctrine of the Twelve. So this idea of the necessity of right doctrine is very strong in Scripture and the early church. The idea that, listen, you read, you decide what you want, and we'll all just get along is no foundation. Throw it uh, uh, an, another modern problem, if you will, into the interpretation of this passage. I know, uh, Drake, when you got your master's in theology, I'm sure you dealt with higher criticism and, and mm -hmm. the different views of how to interpret Scripture. I don't know if any of you listening to this program are potentially Protestant ministers with backgrounds from seminary. They deal with, there was the Petrine community, the Pauline community, the yes. Johannine community, right. as if they were individual communities that had each sprung forth from their apostolic leader, right. Peter, Paul, or John, or James, um, with some biblical scholars want to imply that each of these communities had a little different spin. Mm. Well, this is okay. The Johannine community. <laughs> and he is describing, you must abide in the doctrine of Christ that I passed on to you. Mm. Well, is that the same as the Pauline, the Petrine, the, the James? There's distinctions. Yes. So how do you know if you're following the right one? Right. So that's <laughs> the million dollar question. And on my journey into the church, being a pastor, each week teaching the truth, doing my best to assist people on their journey to heaven, all of a sudden beginning to reflect on the possibility that I'm not communicating the fullness of the truth. And it sets up and necessitates an objective way to know the truth from an objective source. And it, it sets up the need for the church as understood by the Catholic Church. And, and you, you get into, uh, when I first read uh, uh, Clement's letter to the Corinthians, mm -hmm. And the idea of apostolic succession, you can make, you can point to it in Acts chapter one, but then to find Clement explicitly lay out this apostolic succession ordained, set up by the apostles for the purpose of handing on authority, and then watch this unfold in the church. It was it was earth shattering for me to see this is not a late invention. This is apostolic in its origins. Now, I want to point out, I'm seeing at least five things in these three passages um, that, as I look back, just jump right out at you mm -hmm. that, um, you know, you as a four-square gospel, I was a Presbyterian pastor. I don't know what I did with these <laughs> because, number one, you could potentially lose what you worked for, hmm. verse 8. Whatever he's talking about. Does he mean salvation? Right. Does he right. mean... But number two, a full reward. Well, what does that mean? Right. You know, how do we interpret that? I mean, number three, um, you don't even have God if you don't remain in this doctrine of Christ. Hmm. That's pretty wild. Number four, um, if you do... You have the Father and the Son. I know you were Pentecostal, but it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, yeah. in terms of the, remember the early Christological yeah. controversies. Yes. And number five, if somebody comes teaching you something different, you don't even receive him. Right. Well, as a four-square gospel, that is so radically different than the Methodists, the Presbyterians, yes. the Episcopalians. Right. So how do you interpret this? Those five different things, for right. example. Right. <clears throat> so the receiving, uh, I think Foursquare took that to heart, and that's where, you know, to become a Foursquare pastor, we had to sign on the dotted line to say we formally reject Calvin's doctrine of double predestination. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but it uh, it sets up so many issues that have uh, 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 significant repercussions. But this is what I, what I would like to point it to. Yep is the Catholic Church does not have an official interpretation of every single scripture. You don't flip to some book. What, do, what does the church say about 2 John 9? What they do have is what is to be believed. What must be believed? What are things that you can take or leave? That's what this speaks to, is that, it, that, that is present 
somewhere. And that's what the church has been very consistent from the beginning, like the Christological controversies, as questions arose, more formally dealing with particular questions along the way throughout the years and to modern times, cloning that they never could have imagined. <laughs> what do we do with that? Um, and for me, where this began to resonate most, most loudly was if it's so important to know, there must be an objective way to know, not a subjective, what do you think, what do I think? And what I found in Foursquare and most ecumenical Protestant movements came, uh, eventually landed on lowest common denominator, Christianity. Hmm. Whatever we don't agree on becomes peripheral. Tongues, you don't, I do, okay, that's peripheral. Guitars, organ, you don't, I do, that's peripheral. All the way down to, you pretty much get to Jesus, he died, he rose again, all right, we're good there. Many denominations today are even beginning to uh, fudge on the Trinity yeah. and the necessity of that belief. Well, one of the largest Pentecostal churches. Yes. The United Pentecostals yes, are, yes. are one of yes. Pentecostals. So yes. there you go. Right, back to debates from the early church that uh, are, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, all <laughs> those five things that, that we've been talking about, you could see any one of these denominations from the pulpit. Yes. You were in a pulpit. I, how are we gonna interpret this to our people? The working, the full reward, right? You know, and uh, how do? What is the doctrine of Christ? You would define it from your pulpit differently than I would have from my Presbyterian pulpit, right? Pentecostals, we said we were full gospel. You were just mostly gospel. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and it's, you you called us the frozen chosen. That's right. But even this, this idea of, well, you don't let them into the church if they're not teaching the gospel that I right. happen to be teaching them this Sunday. I mean, that's what it seems to say right. here. And, and some folks, the Baptists, would take this to heart. They would not share a building with Pentecostals in the early days because you only spoke in tongues or did miracles by the power of Satan. Yep. And, and so there was, uh, in earlier days, there was serious dividing lines drawn. Today, things have become much softer and uh, everybody wants to get along. Well, the point of our discussion is to, to point out that if you look at these particular scriptures, number one, they are very bold exhortations. Yes. In fact, the author begins with look to yourselves. Yes. He is saying, listen, this is important. Yes. But if you're looking at it honestly, you can recognize that apart from a trustworthy authority, you're going to end up with any number of interpretations, even down to I mean, we have traditional Christian denominations that are teaching moral standards that our forefathers would never have dreamed yes. right. that modern churches would, would be not only allowing but promoting. Right. All right. Yes. Well, what about these passages? Right. Which, if we can go to the second Please. scripture that you read, John 8. This Why don't is where, you go ahead and read it? Okay, yeah. so read it again. Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So this sets up again that tension. He's dealing with Jews who have believed. <laughs> faith, faith alone, Jesus says no. To those who had believed, he adds this second qualifier. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciple. The disciple is not merely defined by belief or acceptance or intellectual assent. Uh, it starts there. It always starts with a heart conversion first, but it doesn't stop there. And then you'll be the disciples. You will know the truth. The truth will make you free. There is something to understanding the truth that requires belief and action. Walk the talk. Back to that. And, and we always believe that, and all de Protestant denominations right. believe Nobody would say, just believe, live however you want, although some of the Reformers seem to write <laughs> such like that, but... <laughs> Probably <regretted laughs> having written it. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, so everyone agrees that we should live. The, the, the distinction here is, does it matter on whether or not you are actually a follower of Christ or not? That's where the division comes. No, Calvin would say, no, you're either eternally saved or eternally damned, and and that uh, your, your life will reflect that if you're saved, but that has no bearing on being saved or not. Pentecostals, we said, well, no, your life does matter how you live. You can lose your salvation, but we don't quite know how you can lose it. We don't want to go that far just to actually quantify it. But again, so what does it set up? It sets the if. You continue my word. It sets up the need 
for an objective way to know what is the word of Christ that we are to continue in and how to understand that, which for me began to continue to resonate. I heard these, I never saw these, Hmm. and the need for that authority who can bring clarity amidst the confusion. That word continue is the same word that we used in the the previous passage translated as abide. It's the same exact word, same Greek word. But I know from your background, probably when you said continue in my word from the pulpit, when you would say that you would lift up the Bible, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I mean, yes. that's what we presumed, yes. right? that it was equivalent, my word meant the Bible. But again, historically, that isn't accurate. Right. In fact, just in RCA uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, in talking about scripture, I, I spend the whole opening on the word of God is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. When you read the word in scripture, it's speaking of Christ. And I've, I've, I've seen apologists or pastors say, listen, uh, we're commanded over and over to read the scriptures and, and, be, and they'll go through and underline everywhere in the scriptures that says the word. Well, that's, <laughs> this is a secondary, the book is a secondary meaning and, and rightly yeah. so. Hebrews 4, uh, the, the word of God is living and active. That is first and foremost, Jesus Christ. But this is the inspired word of God, so it, it uh, uh, is true. Part of the wider tradition, yes, which we're going to look at in a little bit. Let's take a break. We come back, and maybe we'll jump onto that next passage of Ephesians yes. that you want us to look at. Ephesians yes. 3, 9, and 10, when we come back from the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Drake McAllister, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled, Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at one 800 664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Drake McAllister, former uh, Foursquare Gospel pastor, now teaches catechetics at Franciscan University. And uh, uh, so in some ways, a lot of what we're talking about here, uh, Drake, deals with your catechetics, which is teaching yes. the doctrine of Christ, making sure that it accurately gets passed along yes. uh, to new believers. And really, if, before we jump into Ephesians, just for a second, just, I mean, if you look historically, it's interesting to say that that's part of been the problem for 2,000 years mm. when people did not receive the accurate teaching of the doctrine of Christ, yes. that they drift away. And that's the key word that has been my adjustment in becoming Catholic is, the doctrine is just that. It is something received, not something generated by the individual. Hmm. And that's always been the patrimony of the church. No one individual has the right or freedom to change, to alter. It is simply from Christ to the apostles, the apostles to the successors, and on down. I'm a steward of what I have received, which sets up the need for uh, why accurate teaching is so important that uh, there have been too many who have sought fit to uh, alter and make themselves the source. There's a quote from St. Augustine in which he said that basically that no matter how bad the leadership becomes in the church, it never justifies schism. Mm. Amen. And, and that's the point. You don't go out and start your own doctrine of Christ because you believe that, that uh, you don't like what you're hearing, so you, you yes. redo it. Amen. Paul was warning against that in the first chapter of Galatians, mm. new gospels that yes. were popping up already in the early yes. church. Well, you, this third uh, verse that 
Uh, let me read this, Drake, and then you can uh, explain how this fits Good. into your plan for our discussion today. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hmm. Well, this begins to answer the question. If the doctrine must be known, if we must continue in the word, where do we find it? How do we find it? And this was a scripture I don't think I ever would have thought of until having read Ephesians until after becoming Catholic, reading and studying, and this jumped out at me, that here is Paul talking about his mission to the Gentiles. That's me. I'm not Jewish in any way, shape, or form. And and that's most Christians. And this mission that is this mystery hidden for the ages, so this is the whole salvation history prophetic uh, foreshadowing of the coming of Christ and not just salvation for the Jews, but for the entire world. And Paul is making uh, this revelation here that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And I had no concept of church like that. Now, I, I would not have disagreed. Clearly, I was a pastor of a church. We believed in the Foursquare Church, and, and other, we didn't decry any other denomination. Yes, you're going to go establish a church, and that's your primary mode of evangelization and outreach. But, but, but Paul's con- conception here is it, is it is the church, singular, and it is through the church that, that God is being made known. God is not a God of division. The Trinity don't disagree amongst themselves on doctrine and various things. You think of John 17 Mm -hmm. to the apostles, you are to be one like I and the Father are one, perfect unity, visibly, doctrinally, relationally. This is the view of Scripture. And uh, this was one that just stood out to me because I think I would have more readily said through the church, I mean, through the Scriptures, Mm -hmm. Uh, the truth would be made known. This mystery revealed. Let me take you to the scriptures. Well, which is the other thing I didn't realize, how long the church went without having scriptures. I had never, these are questions I'd never even considered until somebody posed them to me. Uh, what did the church do before there was even the first letter written? A good 30 years of the church growing. Uh, a good 330 uh, years before there was the New Testament canon as we know it. Um, so a, a long time before this solidified canon, Paul is saying it's through the church, hmm. through the church, be there a scripture or not, through the church, handed on from Christ to the apostles, to the successors, the didache, the teaching, the doctrine of Christ will be faithfully handed on. And it's through the church that the whole world was to come to know. Uh, uh, Calvin I'm not sure he's the first of the reformers that redefined the marks of the church. I don't mm. know if that was Luther or Calvin, but the, the traditional marks of the church are one holy Catholic apostolic yes. church, the four marks of the church. Right. One, unity, as you yes. mentioned, holy, yes. Catholic, universal. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's one in its doctrine, right. apostolic. Well, Calvin redefined them, at least he expresses them in his uh, institutes, mm-hmm. that well, what is the marks of a true church? It's defined as preaching the gospel mm. and doing, the wrong word, the sacraments correctly. Oh, yes. So it's the, it's the correct sacraments uh, and the preaching. <laughs> that makes a true church. Mm. So it's interesting, as you were describing, I was thinking about, well, Foursquare Gospel didn't do sacraments. Right. So there's a lot of that. I mean, the, the, neither do the uh, the um, the uh, uh, Salvation Army that's out there ringing right. the bells at right. uh, in front of all the stores. Right. We baptized, but we had no concept of sacrament. Yeah, I mean, right. it wasn't necessary for salvation. Right. So you, for many of these groups, it, it, the the mark of the church comes down to 
the preaching of the word. Yes, yes. And so that would qualify for how do you know that the truth is being passed on? Well, okay, if it can't feel comfortable that there is always a book, well, there's always been preaching, <laughs> which is why, of course, the reformers move the pulpit yep. into the middle. Yes. That's the center of everything. Yes. Is the preaching of yes. the word. Yes. And I mean, to think, to say that the true church is preaching and sacraments properly celebrated, properly uh, um, performed, without the apostolic as a part of the church, that is what holds all the other, the one holy Catholic together because it is in the apostolic that the doctrine is preserved, ordination is preserved, valid Eucharist, uh, but in a Protestant sense, even specifically the right teaching. And so it becomes totally arbitrary to remove that and say, here's the new standard, we've invented it now. This now becomes the definition of right teaching. Uh, and one of the ironies, I think your background would have been similar to mine in that we would have taken the idea that the church, I mean, what is a church? That we would go on to that Matthew passage that says, wherever two or three are gathered right. in my name, right. that's a church. I mean, right. Is that how you basically yes. designed it from your background? Yes. And in fact, in Seattle, very much uh, an area, a hotbed of individualism, a lot of house churches. And uh, there would be guys that would t define church as, listen, me and you over scriptures at Starbucks, that's, that's the church and that's, Christ meant nothing more than that. In fact, there was a guy that designed a denomination with an end date in mind. We're going to start it now, but by 2015, uh, we've put a dissolve clause in, so the church will dissolve at that point because by then we will be irrelevant and something new must be started. Uh, I mean, that's radical deconstruction. If you come at it from that perspective, any of you out there listening, looking at any of these passages we've discussed from that perspective, any two or three people that gather together around the Bible, believing that the Holy Spirit's guided them, and then look at these passages, well, what doctrine of Christ are you going to decide? Right. I mean, for example, why be Trinitarian? If, yes. you're, if you're Trinitarian, you're looking back to a, an ecumenical council back 1,700 years ago. Yes. And there, I have an interesting gentleman, uh, which you may know, uh, I won't mention his name, who is in the process of becoming Catholic uh, over in Bosnia and found himself in the unique place, because there was virtually no Protestants, of creating from scratch a, a Protestant denomination. And it was in the process of, because he, he with the other missionaries decided, well, let's not transpose our differences. Let's take the scripture with these new leaders and let's decide what we believe. In that process, he realized this couldn't work. They, he said we yeah. could not get past the Apostles' Creed because once we got to anything specific, baptism, what does it mean? It could not be decided. And it was an eye-opener to him. Sola Scriptura does, and private interpretation does not work. That's right. And you know, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Mm. Well, if we're thinking that church is two or three people gathered, yes. I mean, kind of the arrogance and the absurdity of saying, well, I mean, you, Drake, you and me, after this uh, radio program, let's right. go start ourselves a church, and we are the ones that are going to make the world know that. The, yes, yes. I mean, the absurdity of that, um, and yet it happens all the time. Yes. All the time. Yes. Let's move on to this Matthew passage. Yes, because this is then the natural extension of that discussion of the two or three. So uh, should I read it again Yes, here? please. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, in, uh, we've, I've been through several, a couple of church splits in my Protestant days, and one in particular, this one man, I brought the scripture to him and said, listen, what about Matthew 18? You're not acting properly. He said, uh, I don't know what that is. Tell me. And so I read this to him. And so we had an understanding and a use. Listen, you need to properly go to your brother and correct him, take two or three, correct him, take it to the church. But we kind of always skipped the take it to the church. We didn't really know what that was. And again, a verse I had read but never really seen because what is clear, what is very, very clear, 
the two or three being the definition of the church is specifically excluded in this scripture because you go personally, you already go to two and three, presuming you're all Christians. If that didn't work, you still must go somewhere else to something called the church that is a findable physical location of some sort. And then the language here, I love it. It says, and then if he refuses to listen even to the church, kind of saying, uh, who would do that? Uh, then if they have rejected the church, it's as if they did not know Christ at all. So it's back to the, am I bold enough to say, if you reject me, Marcus, mm-hmm. you are gent- you're pagan. You're no longer a Christian. That's a sobering question. That, and yeah. those are the questions that continued to pop up as I, I loved scripture and read scripture and realized, am I really claiming to have the authority to determine another's not only eternal destiny, but do I have the authority to determine what others must believe? I, I have to come to my own convictions, but can I tell you what must be believed? I remember in my own journey, and I'm wondering if this was true for you, recognizing with what you've just said that every week you get into a pulpit and there are people in that congregation that trust that you've done your mm-hmm. homework. Yes. And they're busy folk, mm-hmm. families, jobs, and you're there as their pastor, and they believe that what you're teaching is not necessarily infallible, sure. but is a trustworthy yeah. guide to their eternal yes. destiny. Yes. And my guess is that was one of the reasons that you were even set aback yes. in whether you should continue in the pulpit. Yes, absolutely, because no one, you know, sometimes the question of infallibility in the Pope and the church gets raised. But what I've realized, what I teach in RCIA is everybody believes in infallibility. Everybody believes in the Pope. It's just to whom they ascribe that authority because no one knowingly believes error. I don't believe something. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to believe it anyway. I know this is not true about God. We all, we're all convinced and we're willing to stake our eternity on that conviction. And yes, as a shepherd, as a pastor, I began to realize, am I, the, am I the source? Is that really the source? Or is what scripture is saying and what the Catholic Church is saying and the fathers of the church are saying that there is an authority who can determine, who can make sure we abide in the doctrine, and that's the church. All right, let's take another break. We come back. You want to talk a bit about Paradosis. Paradosis. Tradition. Yes. Let's talk about that when we get back from the break. Listening to Deep in Scripture, this is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Drake McAllister, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grota. I'm joined today by Drake McAllister, and we've been discussing the um, a variety of verses that point out the, the problem that can arise in a private interpretation apart from an authoritative church. And we want to deal with the issue of tradition for a second. But I was thinking, just to make sure we, we pick up on what you've just said about the trustworthy authority, I'm going to read the very first line in the introduction from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, written by John Paul, this was his hmm. introduction in which he is presenting this to, he says, my venerable brothers and the cardinals and patriarchs and archbishops, all the way down to us. But here's the statement he says. 
guarding the deposit of faith is the mission which the Lord entrusted to his church and which she fulfills in every age. Mm. I mean, that's what you're trying to say. Yes. Yes. One of the things I love to do if I get to sit somebody over coffee and when they say, why on earth did you become Catholic? So we'll talk about everything. One of the things I love to chart is I'll write down a whole bunch of theological topics and and then, you know, kind of write saints at the top and sinners at the bottom. And so you can go through church history and find some of the most reprobate sinners, some of them popes <laughs> and priests and bishops and find great saints, some of them pope, priests and bishops. And you're going to find everything all along the way, people up and down. The doctrine is the same. Yes, deeper understanding, some nuances. But when you look at Eucharist, baptism, Jesus, apostolic succession, the pope, authority, the church, there, it, you don't find this stock market graph going up. and It is remarkably consistent regardless of the fidelity of individuals. Yep. And this is the mission of the church. It's the promise of Christ to Peter. The gates of hell will not prevail. What I establish here will persevere. And the truth is findable because it must be known. It must be adhered to. It must be lived. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and it's it, to me that so defines that the church isn't defining herself as, um, you know, we will respond to the needs of culture mm. and every new president of the denomination will have the freedom to react and respond as the Mormon president does. Mm, it changes yeah. every time there's a new president of yes. the Mormon church. Yes. Or the Presbyterians, they gather every summer and vote, as the Episcopalians have also yes. done and voted in some pretty strange yes. things. Yes. I don't know how they did in the in the Foursquare Gospel Church, but I don't ever see them saying our purpose is to guard what was handed right. on from us from the beginning. And it goes back to what I said of earlier of the Christian faith is something received, hmm. something received. and. That it took a long time to really work through my mind because my Protestant faith was not something received. It was something I discovered, I validated, I believed, something I found. And if I disagreed with you, I figure out why I disagree with you, make my case. That's not the historic faith. Well, this idea of depositing, I mean, guarding the deposit of faith so regarding something, something's passed on, where now we're dealing with this issue of tradition. Yes. Talk a bit about that. Well, so I, I bring up this issue of tradition, not so much for the specific point of talking about tradition and what it is, but for the question of Scripture and reading Scripture, the love of Scripture, and another one of my big eye-openers. So as a pastor, I didn't take Greek in my, uh, my, my Bible college, my undergrad time, but I, so I later began reading, uh, studying Greek. I was tired of reading comparative translations. I wanted to read original. So it was while I was studying Greek and using the New International Version scriptures were the very, very, very popular set of scriptures. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm also learning about the Catholic Church at this time and began to learn about tradition, studying Greek, reading, whatnot. And so I come across paradosis, the, the word for, tra for tradition. And there are about 11 or so scriptures in the New Testament that use this paradosis for tradition. And these will all be posted on the website in, in case you're wondering Great. if those you're listening. And it's very clear, every Protestant knows, Jesus condemned tradition. And Catholics are all filled with tradition, and that's why we shouldn't be one. And <laughs> so you read Mark 15, 6, 7, 3, uh, I mean, excuse me, Matthew 15, 6, or Mark chapter 7. Uh, and these all, Jesus is very clear that he condemns tradition. And he says, like so Mark 7, 8, you have let go of the commands of God and you are holding to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of setting aside the command of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now, here's what shocked me. In the NIV translation, paradosis, every time tradition is mentioned in the negative, like Jesus condemning, it's always translated tradition. But when there was a scripture like 1 Corinthians 12, um, 11, 2, that says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to, it says, the teachings, just as I pass them on to you. What I discovered was that's the same paradosis. Paul is commending them for holding to the traditions. Every positive view of paradosis was always translated teaching. Every negative view was translated tradition. So if you read the NIV, it does a little interpreting for you. 
so that you develop a negative view of tradition, a positive view of teaching, stay away from tradition. Catholic's tradition, stay away from it. I tell people, the love of Scripture is one of the things that helped me become Catholic. (laughs) And the love of Scripture in light of history, in the historical context, and when you start getting into Paul's other scriptures, so he gets into 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.15, stand firm, hold to the traditions that we passed on to you. How? Whether by word of mouth or letter. So is it an oral tradition or a, a written tradition? This is the doctrine handed on. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, and again, stay away from every brother that does not live according to the tradition you receive from us. Paul has a very strong view of tradition as apostolic teaching. So Jesus clearly condemns tradition of men that were being passed on as doctrine. Now, it's also fair to say the Catholic Church is filled with traditions of men. Mm-hmm. Traditions of men aren't bad. We've, uh, those are what we'd call little t traditions, things that could come and go. An organ of mass, a guitar at mass, Latin, English. Right. These are things that can come and go, but they're not doctrines. And that's what they were being chided for, teaching traditions as doctrines. This was just, again, one of the many things as I began to dig deeper in Scripture and realize there is so much here that sounds very Catholic. But again, the, the fathers become the interpretive lens to contextualize everything. So you get out of the first century, get into Irenaeus in the second century, which after became Catholic, he was my patron saint and realized <laughs> his feast day was my birthday. So <laughs> that he speaks very clearly of tradition and said, even if we didn't have Scriptures, we would know what to teach from the tradition of the church, the doctrine handed down. And when you're reading the catechism on tradition, specifically when we say Catholic tradition, when we say tradition, it is the entirety of what we believe. Some of that was written down in the inspired scriptures. Some of it was passed on by the preaching and the, you know, and, and what you've just pointed out is the, the danger of, of folk that believe in sola scriptura, but are limited to their English translation, yes. whichever committee put together their particular translation. Sure. Yes. And then even if you're reading the original, disconnected from the interpretive tradition of those that knew the apostles and spoke Greek as a native language is very profound. Yeah. You can you can really get off easily and so you gotta hold tight to the good old church our Lord gave yes. us. Drake, thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us and uh, you know our blessings uh, on you and your work and your family. And all of you joining us on this program, I pray this has been an encouragement to you. Uh, Please go to the website and find out more about what we're doing on the Coming Home Network and this radio, chnetwork.org. And look forward to being with you again next week. God bless.